Hello, and welcome back to Misshelved. I'm your host, Nicole Brinkley, and I'm so excited to once again bring you a fabulous independent bookseller in conversation with an equally fabulous author. Today's indie bookseller is Cecilia Cackley. Hi, my name is Cecilia Cackley. I am the children's and young adult buyer and event coordinator for East City Bookshop, which is an independent bookstore located on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Her football-loving author companion is the inaugural Pura Belpre YA Award winner, Shamile Sayed Mendez. Hello, my name is Shamile Sayed Mendez, and I am the author of Furia. I'm also an author of picture books, middle grades, and short stories. Sit back and listen to these two talk about football, Argentina, and the importance of supporting your local communities. ¿Cómo anda? ¿Todo bien, Shamile? Todo, todo súper bien. Por fin nos encontramos, Cecilia. Por fin. ¡Qué emoción! All it took was the pandemic. I know, I know. And this is something that I keep going back to whenever I have a virtual event. People ask me, are you sad that you can't see people in person? And I am super sad that I can't see you in person and give you a hug and gush about soccer and books. But at the same time, the pandemic and technology has made it so much more accessible for people to tune in to events that otherwise they wouldn't have access to. And it has allowed me to reach an audience that otherwise I wouldn't be able to reach if I had to travel. There's good and bad things that have come from all this. That's really true. I feel like we really should be sharing a mate over this conversation. You can better have my mate. I am going to take a picture and send it to you later so that you can see that I had my mate and I also had a croissant with dulce de leche. (laughs) (laughs) I do not have any of those things and I miss them. (laughs) (laughs) So Cecilia, you were in Argentina, right? Yes, I lived in Argentina in the fall of 2014. And what were you doing there? I lived in Buenos Aires. I was writing a, a, a puppet play, a shadow puppet play, and I spent a lot of time going to theater and watching rehearsals and talking with Mm -hmm. different artists. I had a fellowship from the city of DC. They give a lot of money to artists, which is really, Uh really nice. And that basically allowed me to kind of take a sabbatical for a semester and leave my life behind and go to Argentina. So I was in Buenos Aires, and then I went to two different puppetry festivals, one outside of Uh Cordoba and one outside of Neuquén. Oh, how nice. I've never been to Neuquén. But I've heard that it's beautiful. It's really pretty. The river outside is really nice. And that was also really special because it was an all-female conference. So it was a Convocatoria de Mujeres Titiriteras. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time they had ever had it. I don't even know if they've repeated it since Uh then. But it was organized by three different puppeteers. And it was about, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 women from all over the country between the ages of 18 and 60. Uh And, you know, people who'd been doing puppets for a very long time and came together to share ideas and take workshops and talk about our work. And it was just a really, really lovely, supportive space. Oh, I love that so much. I left Argentina when I was still a teenager. So there are so many things about my country that I never got to explore or experience. And every time I go back now, it's to see my family. So there's never enough time to do everything I have in my bucket list. But my dream is to one day tour 
Patagonia, go to the Iguazu Falls and go to Salta and, and explore yeah. and get to know more um, the artistic community and connect with Argentine authors because although I've written my whole life, I never had a connection to the writer's community there. And now so many amazing, not now, because Argentina has always had a super rich tradition of literature, but the contemporary authors being published right now are doing super powerful work. And I've had the chance to connect with a couple of them through social media. Again, the magic of technology bringing us together. But yeah. I would love to meet in person one day and do a workshop or even just go and listen to them talk and learn from them. Because the literature that's coming out of Latin America is so different from the literature that's being produced in the U.S. by Latinx authors. And I find that so fascinating how always art represents what's going on in our society and our personal lives. I just finished a Brazilian book here the whole time, which is a YA book coming from Scholastic. It was just beautiful. I enjoyed it so much. It's just a really sweet, sweet love story. I kind of have been calling it like the Becky Albertalli oh. of Brazil because it's just this lovely, realistic first person narrative, queer narrative, and just lovely. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm excited that I get to sell it. I have not heard about it. Do you remember who the author is? Give me one second. I'm going to reach yes. across my table. I'm, I'm taking ah. notes here. <laughs> Vitor Martins from the Push imprint. That's awesome. That's wonderful. I have been reading, I don't know, pandemic <laughs> has changed my reading habits. So I've been reading a lot of horror. Sometimes people are so surprised when they ask me. <laughs> I don't understand you people. I really do not. <laughs> I, I can't read horror in the best of times. I don't write horror. But for some reason, I keep pivoting from horror to romance. Those are my two moods and throughout all age groups. So horror, middle grade, away, and even adults. So the adult book that I just read from Agustina Basterrica, I read the Spanish version of Tender is the Flesh. Oh, wow. Um, and in Spanish, it's called um, Cadaver Exquisito. And it was terrifying. It made me a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's the power of the written word. The English version is up for one of the Goodreads books of the mm -hmm. year, along with Stephen King and uh, Guillermo del Toro. And so it, it's just fascinating. Uh, I, I love to see the things that are being produced outside of the U.S. because it shows you the human experience from different per perspectives. When I was living in Argentina, I spent a lot of time in bookstores because there are so many of them right and it's so wonderful it was one of my favorite things about being in that country is just that literally there are bookstores on every single street exactly and there's even a night or a couple of nights in the summer that's called la noche de las librerías mm -hmm. the night of the bookstore so people go bookstore hopping all night oh, long my dream when people ask also why i became an author i'm like along with soccer the Argentine people have an obsession with story and a love for the printed word. Which was your favorite bookstore when you were there? Oh, that's hard to say. I don't really remember any of the names. I would have to go and look at a map or look back at my journal to try and remember where in the city they were. Because it's such a big city. 
It, it's enormous, yes. One of the things that I really found interesting, which is, of course, just because it's very different from the way bookstores operate in the United States, was I saw lots of bookstores that were operated by publishers. You mm. had a bookstore that was focused entirely or almost entirely on books from one particular publisher, which is not really a model that we have here at all. So there was one specifically children's bookstore that I now have zero memory of where it was, <laughs> um, but it was very small and very crowded. I bought a lot of picture books there. I love buying picture books when I go to Argentina because the art is so different. It is. So that's awesome. I lived in San Telmo when I was there. So I was actually around the corner from the English bookstore in that neighborhood but then there was also a used bookstore a few streets away called El Rufian Melancolico. I love it. <laughs> which I always just loved for the name alone. Yes. Melancholy Ruffian. The gentleman who owned it was also just generally very nice and always willing to talk and chat, as are most people in Argentina, I found. Right. Yes. San Telmo is an emblematic neighborhood in Buenos Aires because of the tango culture. Did you have the chance to go to any tango shows when you were there? I didn't go to any shows. I went to a few milongas. I went to a few, you know, not like formal shows, but dance nights in the evening. I did not try and dance ever at all. I was way Me too intimidated. <laughs> I always am intimidated to it. You could not force me to go and try because I'm always mesmerized by what the, not even professional dancers, but you know, like regular yeah. dancers can do. It's amazing. And here in DC or in Arlington, actually, across the river in Virginia, there was a, a pretty strong tango scene and a number of teachers from Argentina who had lessons and, and milongas yes. and, and spaces for people to practice and to dance. It always looked really hard. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. But it, it's beautiful, though. It's funny because when I came to the U.S. from Argentina, I, as a teenager, I never listened to tango because that was music for old people, right? Like right. I remember... <laughs> My grandfather playing his Carlos Gardel tangos. And then I was so homesick that I started listening to tango. <laughs> <laughs> Mariachi, I feel like, functions a little bit the same way. Exactly, In yes. my culture. <laughs> my mother played so much mariachi growing up. And, and even singers who were pop singers like Linda Ronstadt. I heard Linda Ronstadt's mariachi album, Canciones de Mi Padre over mm -hmm. and over when I was growing up because it's one of my mother's favorite records it never really drew me in all that much it was always like oh yeah you know there's the trumpet and the violin and I'm not really interested <laughs> I've grown to appreciate it a lot more as an adult it's inevitable for me to ask you if you had the chance to go to a soccer game what was your team that you liked in Argentina this was probably one of my biggest regrets is I did not go to any games I think it was because, like with tango, I was a little too intimidated. It's a very specific world, like even within Buenos Aires. I mean, Buenos Aires already was a very new and different, sometimes overwhelming city to get used to. But sort of even within that, soccer was kind of its very own thing. And I didn't really feel equipped to navigate that on my own. And I didn't know anybody there. I knew very few people there to begin with. Uh -huh. But nobody that I like encountered or made friends with, none of them were really into soccer at all. Oh my gosh, okay. It seems weird. <laughs> like, how was I able to meet all these people and none of them were football fans? Yes. So it just sort of never came up. Growing up, I did go to the stadium quite a few times. 
my team is Rosario Central. Right. I could figure that out from, from the, the book. book. Exactly. <laughs> oh, when people ask me and they have read the book, I'm like, did you, how did you not get it from the book? I mean, hello. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I think you brought up Newell's Old Boys like once. once. <laughs> and I had to because I was talking about the rivals and yeah. my editor kept nudging me. Do you want to say, I'm like, no, I don't want to say anything about them. I don't want to give them any credit. <laughs> <laughs> we're just gonna ignore them we're gonna ignore their we're entire gonna, existence exactly <laughs> and so but at the same time every time I go back to Argentina now I have not been able to go to a game because every time I travel it's during the holidays when there's no games going on and then other times of the year I've had young children with me and it's not very safe for kids to go <laughs> to a game yeah. unless unless you are a member of the club and have your season passes, but those are very hard tickets to buy. But it is an experience like no other, because for example, I go to the Real Salt Lake games here all the time, or the Utah Royals. Environment and the electricity in the air is nothing compared to going to a game in yeah. Argentina. And, yeah. and even when we didn't go to the game, you always knew they were happening because of how electrified the city felt mm -hmm. we knew you, you couldn't escape the fact that central was playing well in the stadium in rosario the stadium is located pretty sorry for the pun centrally <laughs> which i feel like is very different from a lot of cities in the united states where often stadiums are in are outside of a city or a train ride or, or a bus ride away exactly the mood doesn't sort of permeate the city in in quite the same no. way in dc when there's a hockey game uh -huh. Everyone knows if you're anywhere close to downtown, there are tons and tons and tons and tons of hockey fans. The DC United fans, I feel like, are not nearly as visible. <laughs> Although there are so many, they always packed, packed the, the, the stadium as far as I could tell from the TV. But even yeah. here in Utah, when during the World Cup, especially, it's certain communities that are more immersed in the culture of soccer and then their regular society doesn't know that anything special is going on. Even for the Women's World Cup, when the U.S. won, a lot of people they didn't even know that the U.S. was playing the final. And I was so sad for them that they would not get to experience seeing their country win the World Cup. <laughs> I was lucky enough to be at that oh game. Oh, my God. In France. I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was pretty amazing. Oh. It's going to be hard now. I feel like nothing is going to no, measure up to it. You no, know? <laughs> that's like the pinnacle of the soccer experience. That's amazing. I went to the Copa America final between Chile and Argentina in New York in 2017, oh. 18, 18, 18. Yeah, that was a heartbreaking And game. <laughs> when we lost, I felt physically sick and we were so heartbroken. It was my husband, two of my sons and me. And we were so devastated that we couldn't really get into soccer for a few months. Like my husband yeah. said, he's from Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, it's not even my team. What have you done to me? You know, yeah. <laughs> he was so sad. But part of yeah. the game, it's, you know, the ups and downs of the sport. It's true. I've never really been a sports person, right? And I think it's interesting. I think a lot of us, Growing up, there are obviously lots of reasons for this, but, you know, kids are sort of pushed to define themselves as like one thing or another, uh -huh. right? You know, like you're either the bookish, quiet girl or you're the outgoing 
sports player, soccer player or whatever. And I think a lot of our media kind of doubles down on on those simplifications, right, of personality and identity. And I, as a child in the 90s, 100% bought into the idea that, oh, I am the bookish artistic girl and I have no interest whatsoever in sports to the point where when people are like, oh, you know, you do so many things, right? You're a bookseller and you're a puppeteer and a playwright and a performer, you know, is there anything you don't do, Cecilia? And my sort of knee jerk answer was always, I don't do sports. And I don't, I do not play them. I trip over my own feet when I try to play soccer. <laughs> but I, I do really love watching it. And it's taken me a really long time to kind of see that can be part of who you are too. Exactly. <laughs> the one does not negate the other. So it's been fun, I think, especially hearing from professional players like Sean Doolittle for the Washington Nationals, who's a huge fan of independent bookstores and reading and sci-fi and fantasy books in particular, you know, watching him talk about everything that he reads and even U.S. Women's National Team members like Becky Sauerbrunn or Rose Lavelle or Andy Sullivan talking about how they love Harry Potter. And some of them being authors because Alex Morgan has a series uh, about soccer and I love it. It's so darling. Abby Wambach has her Wolfpack kid version that just came out. So a lot of yeah. these authors are also super fans of books. And, and, and I feel like it's so important for the audience to see that you, you, you do contain multitudes, not because you're mm-hmm. a superstar yeah. in sports, you're not going to be interested in books or, or whatever else. Were there any players that you were especially thinking of when you were kind of constructing Camila's character in the book Furia? Were there people that you were thinking of in the back of your head, like this style of play or this kind of striker? You know, yes and no, because growing up, I only knew of the U.S. national team as having made it, playing professionally or winning tournaments. Camila was very different from them. But the people that I kind of drew from to create Camila were just regular girls and women playing in the barrios without a team. And these stereotypical women players in Argentine society, there was one. She wasn't even a soccer player. She was just a soccer fan. She was called La Raulito. And she was part of the Boca Juniors um, Barra Brava, the the fan Uh base. And any time there was a girl that showed any interest in soccer, she was nicknamed La Raulito. I'm thinking of their faces as I'm talking, how they didn't care. They just kept playing. The world will never know their names, but they just kept playing because they loved the sport so much. So it's all these anonymous faces that, that I drew from. And then I wanted her to be a confident player and a confident person. I mean, Camila struggles with a lot of things in the book, but her ability in the field and her worth as a person never are never threatened, no matter what's mm-hmm. going on around her or what her family says. And so I had kind of like an ideal of who I would have liked to be as a little girl or the role model that I would have liked to have as a little girl. And then I rode towards that goal. And that's how Camila came mm-hmm. out. Because the women who played soccer were just in obscurity because for many years, playing soccer for women was against the law. There were actual laws written right. that forbid them from yeah. playing. So they had to play in obscurity. I didn't want that for my character. 
And of course, she lives in a very different society from the one that I grew up in. Because of all the social changes and the Nuna Menos movement, Camila is growing in a very different society from the one that I experienced. I feel like young girls have so many role models to inspire them and that are not imaginary people or cartoon people. They're real soccer player women who are paving the way for them. It's really been great to see that develop, even just over the course of the life of the National Women's Soccer League Mm -hmm. here in the United States. Everything has changed a lot and is continuing to change for the better. I think we saw that during the pandemic where players were guaranteed their salary, even if they weren't able to play. Mm -hmm. That's huge, considering that, as you say, it wasn't so long ago that it was illegal to play. In many places around the world, it's not something you are able to do Mm -hmm. professionally. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that is a a possibility in the United States, even if it's only for a very small number of people, is still... So I think a sign of progress. It, it totally is. Today, I was going through my social media feed and I'm seeing this time of the year when the Women's League just ended is the, the oh my gosh, I'm blanking out on how the, the specific name, but it's when players are being transferred from to another team. It, yes, it's the draft. And uh, not only being drafted, but it's when they just, they're just switching from a professional team to another. And... Uh, and you didn't used to know that that was going on for the women. For the men, it's always big news. You know, like when Cristiano Ronaldo transferred from Real Madrid to Juventus, that made the headlines and people know the exact number of his contract, you know. Yeah. But for the women, you didn't even know that happened. And today I'm watching all these players going from these teams from Spain to Chile and other places in Latin America and back and forth. And it just fills me with joy to see that they're making news. Those, those, those mm-hmm. transfers make the news when before nobody cared. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It was, I will tell you, it was a little, you know, weird to, to watch Barcelona play Juventus uh, in the Champions yeah. League because in my brain, I'm, you know, I think of Diego, of course, your character <laughs> Diego is like the Messi character, yeah. right? A Messi plays for Barcelona, but Diego plays for Juventus. And I kept being like, wait a minute, you're wearing the wrong shirt. This is weird. <laughs> I love it. But, you know, I will tell you a little secret. So, yes, Diego mm-hmm. is a lot like Messi, but actually a lot of um, my, my inspiration for Diego was also in Paulo Dybala. So, so, and, you know, that game was very hard for me because I had my two teams playing against each other and I, I love Paulo but I love Leo more and so I wanted Leo <laughs> I wanted Leo to win I was like oh my gosh so relieved you know in a way I was a little relieved that Cristiano couldn't make the game because I was... <laughs> right I'm excited you probably saw the news with the most recent U.S. Women's National Team camp that Katarina Macario from Stanford got called into the the senior team camp and she's now a U.S. citizen they're hoping yes. that you know, the procedure will come through. And that was also super, super exciting because I'm like, I would like yes. more Latin, Latin, you know, Latinx players, please, on the U.S. Women's National That's team. the thing. Isn't it sad? And that's something that I've observed a lot because my children play soccer. And in my son's team, of course, he's Latino, you know, Puerto Rican father, Argentine mother. And pretty much 80% of the team are boys of color. They're um, either Latinx, yeah. Latino boys, or, or, or black boys. And we have two Asian boys. And you see that a lot in the boys' teams. But in the girls' teams, 
the majority yeah. of the players are white players. And I think it's because, sadly, in our culture, Cecilia, although the women's team here in the U.S. is so successful and popular and respected in our Latinx community, it's still very much a sport for men. And girls are not encouraged to pursue a career or even playing soccer competitively when they're young. I think it's also our model. I mean, there's still a lot of discussion happening, I think, in the media about how the fact that the United States has this, they call it, right, the pay-to-play model, you know, that you have to pay to participate in youth soccer pretty much everywhere. And that cuts out a lot of people. That's a huge barrier to entry for a lot of families. There's already this, this perception that it's not a sport for women, that it's not something that girls should be doing. I think that just, you know, exacerbates it even more. In D.C., we've got a couple of organizations that work to try and overcome those barriers. There's the Open Goal Project, which supports kids, and then DC Scores, which the Washington Spirit were playing for in the fall series in the Community Shield, which operates soccer teams as after-school programs at a whole bunch of schools in the district, including the elementary school that I teach for. They do not just soccer, but also writing workshops. They do like slam poetry and a lot of other things as well. It's a really lovely program. I'm really excited that the Spirit were supporting them and hopefully raising their profile a little bit outside of uh, the district. Those are amazing, amazing programs. And that's something that, in fact, my husband and I were talking to somebody a couple of nights ago about, you know, the soccer system. Again, talking about this documentary is how in other countries besides the U.S., players start competing when they're nine years old and they're so intent they just focus on the one sport and they go from there and how our system in the U.S. is so different and we mentioned the pay to play how exclusionary it is because when the fees are outrageous even in our local team for my son we have to you know do fundraisers all the time so that our children can play because some of the costs are you know exorbitant But in other countries, when it's more inclusive, I mean, at least, you know, financially, they have a bigger pool of players to select. And and this person was asking why the U.S. men's team is not as competitive as other countries. And we're saying, you know, (laughs) that's one of the reasons because you find, for example, in Argentina, to talk specifically about a country, little boys are just playing or kids are just playing all day long in the street. All you need to play is a ball. Sometimes it doesn't have to be a regular ball. It can be made up ball of, of rocks or whatever it is. They get amazing skills and then they can grow without having to pay to play a sport. And the situation here in the U.S. is so different. So, I mean, a lot of conversations happening in the background uh, as to how we can improve um, the situation. And I love initiatives like the ones that you mentioned because we do need to make it more inclusive, not only uh, as far as, you know, boys and girls, but trying to include all social levels so that every kid Mm -hmm. can benefit. Because it's not only, even if these children are not going to become professional soccer players, the power that the sport has to teach them values to a a team is also a family. So some children who immigrated to the U.S. and left their extended families behind it, it, it's so important to have this network, this connection to the community to contain them. And especially for girls, when I was doing my master's degree, I did my thesis on puberty in middle grade, how it's portrayed. And I also talked about how 
50% of the girls will quit sports when they hit puberty. And how detrimental mm -hmm. that is because playing a sport or being involved in something that you're good at can help your self-esteem so much. There are so many layers into that. Yeah, and I think one of the other things about soccer in particular, and I think this comes out you know, so beautifully in Furia, is the fact that it does connect people across all cultures, all continents, all, you know, kinds of different people. That's really powerful. If you play soccer or if you follow soccer, that basically means that you have something that you can talk about yes. with somebody anywhere in the world. I feel like I definitely felt that when I was lucky enough as a college student to start to travel, mm -hmm. being in Europe, being in places where I'm meeting people for the first time and I'm a very shy teenager. But, you know, if there's a soccer game playing, everybody can watch that. Everybody can complain about something. Everybody can connect over it. I think that promotes a level of understanding and connection that we exactly. need. Exactly, um, yes. You know, I always say that you know, having lived in the U.S. longer than I ever lived in Argentina and having been away from home for so long, Sometimes during different periods of my life, my only connection to my country has been this obsession for football. I'm connected mm -hmm. in that way. Well, this has been a lovely, lovely conversation. Shamila, where can people find you on the internet? I'm online in the same way across platforms, Shamile S. Mendez. And remember that my name is spelled with a Y in spite of the SH sound. So Y-A-M-I-L-E-S Mendez at twitter.com, at instagram.com. I'm basically on those two platforms. My website is shamileesmendez.com and I have links to all my books, especially Furia, right there. Awesome. I am currently not on Twitter, but you can follow me there at CityMouseDC. And if anyone's interested in seeing some of my artwork, my website is ceciliacackley.com. Thanks for letting us chat, Nicole. Thank you. This was lovely. <laughs> If you liked today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend about Miss Shelved. To keep up to date with all of our bookish hijinks, follow us at Miss Shelved Pod on Twitter and Instagram. If you really like what happens here, and we hope you do, head over to our Patreon page to help fund this podcast and our Miss Shelved newsletter. Thank you for listening, and as always, happy reading.